You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. probably change the opening music but the blind revelators were really nice enough to let me use that and uh, and i still love that song i think listeners like it too uh the blind revelators with satan your kingdom must come down uh my name is danny anderson welcoming you to another episode of the sectarian review podcast this is going to be a really special episode for me personally um for a number of reasons um peddler's back i always love talking to peddler that's one <laughs> but that's the least of them actually today um another one we get to talk about philip roth uh who's obviously my favorite writer and we've had a show in memorial for his passing um, a, a while back. And today we're going to be talking about one of his books, which is politically relevant, um, newly uh, since 2016, perhaps, um, The Plot Against America from 2001, and so, or 2004, excuse me. And um, joining us today, Todd and I, are two of my students. Um, and so this is... I, my chance to show off uh, some of the really cool people I get to work with here at Mount Aloysius College in Pennsylvania. Uh, I taught a class on Philip Roth this semester, and I was really blown away by that class. And a couple of my sort of more outstanding students um, agreed to actually come on and kind of continue the conversation um, about this book for public consumption. And so uh, in no particular order, um, Haley Ritchie joining us from Skype. Haley, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me, guys. <laughs> oh, it's very exciting. Haley is a, an English education major, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you're going to be an English teacher at some point, and she will be a spectacular one. She's she's very, very bright. Um, and so, Thank you. Yeah, and I really, um, like I said, I've had Haley before in class, and so this has uh, been a pleasure to have her again. She contributed so much and um, has some really great ideas about this book that I want to uh, get to a little bit. And joining um, us all is uh, Melissa Stow. Right? Yeah, that's uh, right. You got you. it. I got it right this time. Uh, Melissa is a, is a comm major and my advisee. Uh, and so, and she, this is the first time I've ever had her in class, but she was um, a spectacular student as well. Melissa, say hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh no, gosh, it's, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. Um, and uh, I hope to have, uh, do this more often, actually. I think when I'm, I don't know that I'm getting bored with the podcast. I'm getting bored with the podcast <laughs> being about me. And so I feel like getting other people involved and empowering other people um, is the way I want to take it. And so to make it kind of more meaningful for myself. And so um, this is my pleasure. And I'm very excited about this conversation. Todd over there. Are you back in Iowa? I assume. I, yeah, I'm in, I recognize uh, your I'm office. I'm always in Iowa. I, you recognize the office, <laughs> yeah. you know, the uh, in a, <laughs> incomprehensible diagrams we, on the board. I you did know, that like, show with Varn about a serious <laughs> man. And this kind of reminds me of that guy's chalkboard. And so, Oh man, you know, I, I, I wish I had, uh, had, had known you were doing that show. Um, <laughs> I would have loved to join that. Uh, it's it's a fun it's a fun movie, and you, it was a great show. Yeah, thanks. You got to say oh. it's a uh, wintry cold here. That's all I will say. Yep, Decorah, um, Iowa. That's that's what oh you get. Right? Uh, that's that is what we get. The Alberta Clipper comes down, and and we are uh, yeah. 
No, it's it's okay today. Today's one of those days. It's uh, close to freezing, but um. <laughs> <laughs> that's not bad. You're our first line of defense over here in the East Coast. You 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 absorb the bigger hit for us. I think so. Uh, we we, um, we do take that uh, yeah. honor once in a while. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, so Todd is a <laughs> professor of physics at Luther College and the co-host of the Book of Nature podcast, which is a really cool podcast about um, scientists talking about. Um, faith and, and science. And, and it's always fun to listen to that too. Um, go listen to all the shows on the Christian Humanist Radio Network, that one in particular, since Todd's here today. So um, so let's go ahead and get started here um, about this. I think this kind of came up as an impromptu idea. I think I posted on Facebook or someplace about how um, the experience I had teaching this book with kids from central Pennsylvania. I guess these guys aren't from central Pennsylvania, but they're from mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, in this particular day and age and the kind of um, renewed relevance that this book has. And then Todd had the idea to do a show. And I asked if maybe a couple of my students could join in. And, uh, and, and so this is how this all thing came about. And I think I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the conversation, but um, real quickly, uh, the, for those of you who haven't read the book, it's uh, basically an alternative history, sort of. It, it, it's uh, it's not quite like the Man in the High Castle because it does some interesting things with the the genre of alternative history. But the the idea is that in the run up to President Roosevelt's third term, um, he actually gets defeated in an election by the uh, isolationist and Nazi sympathizer Charles Lindbergh, uh, who um, basically institutes quasi-fascist, not even quasi in some cases, but overtly fascist policies, but I think more importantly incites a latent anti-Semitism that's been existing in the country. And uh, a group of Jews, in this case, Philip Roth's narrator is the young boy, Philip Roth. Uh, He's uh, it's, it's an alternative version of his own self. Uh, his family gets sort of swept up in the uh, rise of anti-Semitic um, behavior and ideology in America in this kind of Lindbergh presidency. Um, and we get to see what a concentration camp might look like in this kind of context. And we get to see what anti-Semitism um, feels like from the kitchen table. And uh, and we get to see um, all sorts of kind of um, fun and also kind of horrifying um, outcomes uh, of, of such a situation. The, the way in which this book is a little bit different than an alternative history is that all of history doesn't change. Uh, we have a sense in which Lindbergh kind of goes away Roosevelt steps back in and our timeline seems to progress exactly as we we know it because he talks about Bobby Kennedy's assassination in 1968, right? So things seem to have picked right back up where they left off. There's just this brief kind of nightmare almost um, that Roth is imagining for us. And it's a really kind of uh, fascinating um, exercise in literature. Uh, Todd, uh, what are your thoughts about the, the book and are there any kind of um, plot details I'm leaving out? Well, um, I mean, the one thing I should say from the outset is is um, alternative history is is one of those subgenres that I really dig. I mean, I, I, it, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, there, it's got great potential to explore things in a way that I think standard narrative fiction sometimes doesn't do as well, um, or at least not as pointedly. So, um, you know, Harry Dur- Harry Turtledove is somebody I've read a lot of, uh-huh. and it's it's very interesting i mean he 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 ranges all over the map he does you know he does uh 
the South won the Civil War, yeah. you know, uh, uh, series. He also does a Nazi Germany uh, um, series. And he's really pointedly critiquing um, uh, certain currents in society uh, in a way that, that I think Roth is doing here. Um, but what, you know, what I like about it is, is, is particularly this book, he is he's hitting so close to home. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, uh, and I don't I don't just mean the present moment. I mean, that moment. Uh, you know, uh, Lindbergh was a raving anti-Semite, I yeah. mean, which is things I didn't know. I yeah. mean, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I knew about Lindbergh basically up to, uh, you know, them escaping the country or escaping the pressures of being the Lindbergh parents whose baby was, uh, was taken. And I, I you know, I don't think we were ever taught anything about him. Yeah. Uh, no, it was all heroic it, um, hero worship. The, the spirit of St. Louis hangs in the aviation muse- museum in, in it, Washington, D.C. to this day. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, but, I, you know, so, I mean, I, I, and I love Man in the High Castle. I think we still need to do an episode on that. I think that'd be great. Um, but uh, I don't know if you've heard about, uh, heard of uh, Underground Airlines. Uh, no. Uh, by an author by the name of Ben, uh, Ben Winters, um, Underground Railroad. Uh, it gets you the the point, but it's a it's a contemporary novel. Um, and then there's another one called The Two Gates by Ken Davenport, which is a JFK survives mm. uh, 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 novel. And so those are on my Christmas break list uh, <laughs> to read. But so this, you know, I, I really was really excited to to talk about this one. Yeah. Um, well, you know, go ahead, Todd. I'm sorry. You no, know, I'm I'm just you know, for me, you know, personally, um, I grew up. Um, being encouraged in my nerdiness by my parents who bought my brother and me uh, all manner of old time radio tapes. So oh, that doesn't we, show at all. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we, uh, you know, we, I grew up actually with this period of history sort of in my mind because those shows are all sort of all from the thirties and forties and Walter Winchell, yeah. uh, who plays a big role here, you know, occasionally would break in because we were these were World War Two era radio shows, and they kept the Walter Winchell report in in, in the midst of, of some of these tapes. So, I don't know. So anyway, that the whole setting is is very interesting to me. Yeah, and uh, it fits. Um, interestingly, I, I just as we're recording the day before this, I released a show about the multiverse, and uh, and this kind of fits in that theme in a little ways. It's, uh, the alternative <laughs> history fits. Uh, fits in the idea of the multiverse it, so. yeah it does it does yeah. um but i but i like um roth's treatment of an alternate history um is is different it, it's different to me in some sense because he's really like i said he's he's hitting close to home he's really dealing with real events that were in the air maybe just a little bit below a little bit below the surface yeah um and you know so much uh, real history is included in here. Yeah. You know, he, just tw- tweaked a bit. He includes primary documents at the end of the book that has the speeches with, with Lindbergh saying the terrible things. Right. And so this is not stuff he's making up entirely. No, I, there are things he's obviously making up, but yeah. yeah. Um, um, I want to hear our other hosts uh, yeah. thoughts on this book. I'll start with Melissa here. Um, what, what kind of, uh, what was your experience like reading this? Before we get into the things that stand out to you. Oh, man. So my experience reading this is so I I color code my books, my sticky notes when I am taking notes in every Philip Roth book. At least I had started doing it because it was really beneficial for me. And I started with, oh, well, there's a little bit of 
there's some things in here that remind me of current political events that are going on today. And I didn't think that it was going to be that prevalent. But then when I look back at my book, I had every red one was an instance where it reminded me of today's current political climate. And my book is full (laughs) of red sticky notes. And it was really concerning because then every single time I'd read one, I'd be like, this just happened. This just happened. I just read this in the news. I just read this article, like, when they were talking about how they were separating families and sending them off to different areas of the country, I immediately thought of how when families are, like, crossing the border, they're separated and the children are separated in camps. And that was just really one of the things that stuck out to me throughout the novel is Like, I had no idea that it was going to be so relevant today because it was written in 2004. Yeah. But then we also talked in class about how uh, there was that journal article that we reread about how you can't take all of Roth's work to be some prediction for the future. And so then it made me step back again and then I looked at it again. I I couldn't get it out of my brain, though. (laughs) It was still there. I could still see every reference to today's current political climate and it was really scary i'm not gonna lie this is one of the scariest obviously it's one of the books i preferred out of the roth books we read you already know my thoughts on the other ones um (laughs) but it was really scary it was it kind of read if you read it in a certain way with a certain mindset you kind of read it as if it's a horror novel it is it's truly horrific and then especially for the way for it to end just without kind of a resolution or just it just it's kind of horrifying to be honest um perpetual fear right yes. um is the the last chapter and so yeah and absolutely it it does feel like a horror novel in many ways it reminds me of like the movie get out or something yeah which is scary because it seems actually really plausible in the way it's presented right and and so i think that um the idea of this latent anti-semitism just kind of emerging given the right chemical mixture and it, it actually was there all the time that's actually kind of terrifying and and it is sort of a scary book the book that she's i think mostly referring to is the dying animal which we had we had quite a, that was quite an event yeah. in itself in our class um by far the best class i've ever taught though i've never had students scream at each other in class before so yeah. it was it was, yeah. it was wonderful um and so um yeah i i totally agree with um everything melissa said um Haley, what are, what are your thoughts here just uh, in way of reaction to the book um, when I was reading it, I, I really agreed with, uh, I think it was Todd that said earlier that uh, he doesn't create new content to make his his uh, alternative history. Um, and so when I was reading it, just the, it hit me that the sheer fact that this could have happened very easily because of the, the documents that he includes at the end of the book just really um, just really hits home to me as to where like the possibility of this could happen. Um, when I was reading, I kind of got into two major schools of thought where uh, I wondered how plausible it would happen, even though he does include uh, major events, just drawing conclusions based on uh, Germany's uh, economic climate during, after the uh, events of World War I. Um, Germany during that time was very, uh, fragile, and that's how Hitler was able to come to power. Um, our economy wasn't the same. Yes, we were devastated by the Great Depression, but we didn't have the same um, 
kind of fragility that existed in Germany at that time. Uh, and then the second part, which I had written in our final paper, was the sense of acceptance of persecution that the Jewish community seemed to have in this book, where uh, the community seemed to think, oh, it can't happen here, we're fine. And they accepted the prejudice and the persecution that was being forced upon them by the government. Yeah, absolutely. And in class, I, I showed you guys a video of uh, often uh, throughout this book, um, Philip, the, the narrator in the book, talks about the Bund, uh, which is the sort of German or well, the fascist American party, basically, in America at the time. And there's a, a video that's you can find on YouTube if you just Google or go on YouTube and find uh, A Night at the Garden. It's a little short film in which someone took some existing footage of a Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden in the 1930s. And it's it's kind of terrifying because they're doing the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of America. They um, the, the national anthem is being sung. There's a giant portrait of George Washington in the back with two swastikas next to him, right? And it all seems bizarrely plausible that that you can combine the ideas of American freedom with fascist ideology, right? And I think we forget that a couple of tweaks here and there, what Roth wrote about might have actually happened, right, uh, at that moment. And so I think that, uh, I, that I knew a lot of students were kind of shaken by that video because they couldn't believe that happened here. Um, as, as, as Haley says, it can't happen here. Um, but it did almost, mm -hmm. it did really happen here, but really it almost really happened here. And, and so it's, a, um, I think, a really great book to not only learn about history from an alternative perspective, but also to kind of think about, the possibilities of the political present and what can go wrong with just a couple of tweaks here and there. Right. And, and so I think um, it's a, it's a, a chilling book to be, to be, uh, uh, to be sure. Um, Todd, you look like you want to say something. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about things that actually did happen that are, uh, you know, I don't know if they're in Roth's mind in any way at this point in time, but uh you know, shortly after Pearl Harbor, uh, we interned 120,000 Japanese Americans. Yes. Um, I grew up in the Northwest, and uh, it, it was a big part of our history because the Asian American population in Washington State, for instance, is is really really large, and so it's and it was really really you know a local phenomenon for us. So, you know, that's real history and that's by the other side. Yeah. You know, that's that's by FDR, who's, you know, the hero uh, in, in some sense in in um, in this novel, or at least for the Roth family. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that, uh, you know, this got me thinking about was um, and not limited to the American South, but uh, African-Americans uh, were treated many in many ways in the same way with an intentionality to um, uh, the way that the way that the thing made me think about it was the was this office of American absorption yeah. that was, you know, created um, and the, and the, the idea of um, depleting um, the, uh, the community, the Jewish American community by dispersing them um, and treat you know, teaching them as it were. I mean, it's so awful the way that it's talked about. <laughs> teaching them to be better Americans, yeah. uh, to to assimilate. And I and I wonder whether during the unrest 
of the uh, late 50s, early 60s and beyond in the South is this kind of thing just below the surface, as I said before. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, and we actually also are not lynchings are not like a distant memory at the time this was written. Right. And so this is uh, um, for the African-American community. Uh, and actually in Atlanta, there was a uh, oh, the name is escaping me right now. But there was a, a Jewish man who was lynched. Uh, do you guys remember the name? We talked about him in class. I can't remember his name. He's mentioned in the book. Um, but uh, that's it's a- for Frank. Is it a Frank? Um, somebody Frank. <laughs> yeah. I, Leo, Leo Frank, I believe his name Leo was. Frank. Am I right about yeah. that? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, this is sort of not implausible even at the time. Right. And so, um, yeah. And so wh- I, I think it's important before we get into the book, I want to kind of organize this by having each of us just sort of go through and talk about an aspect of the book that really sort of stands out to us and we can kind of spark a conversation kind of naturally through that, if that's okay. Um, but before that, I think for folks who aren't well-read in Roth, this is a kind of, in many ways, a natural progression of his work, but also it's kind of a weird outlier. Uh, at the same time, it doesn't fit a lot of his work. Um, going back to something Melissa alluded to, the the article we read in the most recent edition of uh, Philip Roth Studies is by a guy named Andy Connolly, and, and he sort of talks about the difficulty in making Roth a political writer because his real first and only kind of allegiance is to art. Right. And, and he's definitely writes art that engages with history, but it isn't for didactic sort of political purposes. Right. It's, it's for the purpose of art. Um, and, and that is true of Roth's career. And so even though anti-Semitism is a recurring theme, as you ladies know, at this point in Roth's mm-hmm. fiction, right from the beginning. Um, we don't really see it dealt with at this level uh, until this book. And Roth himself kind of said that at the beginning of his career, of course, he was very controversial in the Jewish community who saw him as kind of a dangerous bad boy figure who's bringing unnecessary attention um, and unkind of uncouth attention to the Jewish community and therefore maybe going to incite anti-Semites to do something to Jews, right? And so Roth has always kind of resisted that. Um, and here at the end of his career, he noted, I'm finally writing uh, the book that the rabbis always wanted me to write at the beginning, I think is how he said it. Um, and so he wrote, wrote it over a number of years uh, and was just sort of tinkering with it until he felt like it was something that was releasable. And it happened to kind of come out in the kind of middle of the Bush administration, right? And so there's some kind of contemporary political commentary going on about the current moment, but it isn't, um, it isn't really about any kind of specific kind of politics. He doesn't want us, you want you to run away from this book with a political action in mind. He wants you to come away with a thought experiment about the nature of evil right? and, and politics. And so um, in a lot of ways, this book, I think, um, fits very neatly with Roth's career, but in many ways, it's like the only thing like it in Roth's career as well. And so um, do you guys, do you guys have any uh, follow up to how you related this book to other Roth works? I found it really interesting. Um, Something I noticed in the other Roth books was that Roth, even though he writes a lot from the perspective of Nathan Zuckerman in his recurring character and a lot from this perspective of the Jewish community, uh, in the other books, he has a tendency to write characters from the perspective of of women, especially women who have uh, past traumas in their life, just any kind. Um, But in this book, 
that's not as a parent. Mm. He's really focusing in on the on the Jewish community and uh, the anti in anti-Semitism that is prevalent that he I'm sure he's experienced in his childhood that his parents and grandparents have experienced. And so for me, this book is something that is so personal to him as he is a member of that family and that community. Yeah. Yeah, that's there's no shikses in this uh, in this book. No, right? yeah, th- that, <laughs> no, there's not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Melissa. I was I had a very similar thought. Um, I thought this book read a lot to me, like American Pastoral. When I read American mm-hmm. Pastoral, I thought these two books were very similar in many ways. And overall, I I found I don't know. To me, this book seemed different from all so like it fits like you said with all of his other works but to me there was just something so completely different about it it inspired so many different emotions in me at least i know like there are certain scenes and the characters they were so like Haley said they're so personal like i could connect to every single character even alvin the his cousin yeah i could connect to alvin and alvin made me really upset when he all of a sudden changed his personality and i felt really this connection to the characters that you don't really get with a lot of his other works like i honestly i feel bad for swede levov in american pastoral obviously you can't not read that book and and not feel bad for him you can't it's just not possible it's a tragedy but in this book all these characters are so fully developed even if you only see them for little portions at a time especially like alvin and for me, Alvin was the character that I really connected with the most, besides Philip, obviously, because Philip's a little boy who's going through all of this trauma and this political unrest in his family and in his community. And maybe this is what Philip Roth felt in the Jewish community. Maybe he felt this unrest because of how disconnected he was due to the books that he wrote previously and how he was impacted by the way that he wrote and the way that he was controversial in the Jewish community. So maybe this is kind of his, hey, this is who I am. I am connected to this family, like Haley was saying, and this is how you hurt me. Yeah, and I, I don't think Roth gets enough credit for the way he kind of revises his own ideas um, throughout his career. Um, as we talked about a lot in class, and that's probably another. Uh, yeah, he sort of does revisit things from earlier parts of his career, and unsettles the things that had previously been settled. And there is a, a, an introspective uh, nature to this book. I think you're right. Um, and you mentioned, uh, Melissa, the uh, connection to American pastoral. And I think that's right. Swede's, or no, it's uh, Swede's father in that book. Um, Jerry, it, Swede Levov in that book is sort of this um, well-to-do uh, Jewish person who leaves the kind of stink of Newark and goes out to the idyllic pastoral America country, American countryside. And when his father comes to visit him, um, uh, not Jerry, what's his name? Uh, Lou. Lou, thank you. Um, he um, uh, points out to him that there's anti-Semites all over the place, right? And, uh, and that guy wrote that book, It Can't Happen Here. And he references a book by Sinclair Lewis, I do believe, um, it can't happen here uh, as like evidence to of how the anti-Semites are going to crawl out of the woodwork, right? And it's almost like Roth then wrote a book from Lou's perspective, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. with, with, America, with uh, uh, Plot Against America. So that is a really good um, connection there. So um, I, I don't really uh, have any 
plan for the rest of this conversation, other than I want to kind of definitely get back to contemporary politics. But I want to talk about the book specifically for a little bit. Um, I, I should have planned this in advance, but I'm a terrible host. And so I don't know who does anybody want to start uh, with uh, where, where they want to begin uh, exploring, exploring this book. I, I got one question. Yeah, go ahead. One question for you all who did the class together. So my, you know, my Roth experience is uh, Goodbye Columbus a long time ago, and um, and a few of his essays in the relatively recently published Library of America volume. Oh right, um, yeah. It's in the section that's you know, reading myself and others. Yeah, so yeah. it's right about writing about writing about Jews. Yeah, yeah. Um, very interesting. Uh, what did you did you have them read any of these essays? I did not. The only um, nonfiction of his I had him had them read was Patrimony, uh, which is not technically not. It's a true story basically. It's more sure. memoirish. Um, and sure. um, a review that he wrote of Leroy Jones's play Dutchman, um, which opened up an interesting conversation about race and uh, Roth's kind of blind spots to uh, the African American sure. experience. And so, yeah, um, yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, I, I'm I'm very intrigued having, you know, having had, you know, in the future having, in the future I will have had this conversation, uh, <laughs> and and uh, um, you, you know I want to look. I, I'm going to grab out of my uh, my office, my other office. I have two offices. Okay. I have a lab office oh, okay. um, where I store a lot of books that aren't <laughs> room for at home. Um, among them is the, the collected uh, essays of his. And I, I actually want to go back and read, in view of this book, read his essays on writing about Jews and yeah. stereotypes of Jews and so forth. Because I, uh, I think I might get more out of them having read this. Yeah. Um, he actually, I mean, it's interesting. I, just as a side note, this is, I don't want to go too much down this road, but uh, has some interesting kind of cruel criticisms of Bernard Malamud um, that I think he probably comes to regret at some point later in his career um, about the quaintness of Malamud's portrayal of Jews and Roth wants this kind of more vivacious, earthy, uh, you know, kind of down in the dirt um, humanizing of Jews, whereas he saw Malamud as sort of, Oh, kind of uh, sanctifying them a bit much. And so, um, mm. yeah, so the, it, it, he does, it's mostly aesthetic, I would say, but go ahead. Interesting. Well, so just to, to start us off, I guess, on one uh, subject from, from that's taken up from the book, um, I, I, I found myself really intrigued by um, Philip's guilt and, um, you know, particularly his, with regard to his friend, Selden, who well friend <laughs> yeah friend of me i guess is yeah, he's right a word. terrible friend but yeah uh, I mean, uh, yeah you know um so uh for, for those who can't remember um uh, among our listeners or haven't read i mean selden is a downstairs neighbor was a downstairs neighbor who essentially you know sort of was a hanger on to philip um and was always after him always wanting to be more of a friend than philip really wanted um and in one of the uh, you know one of the big events in the book is this uh what was it called what was it called Op not operation 42 but um, homestead 42 homestead 42 yeah where where families the jewish families were being scattered across the country i mean is sort of an effort to break up the jewish communities in 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 urban centers and um all but 
the well, Philip's family avoided being caught up in this, transferred to um, somewhere else in, in in North America by his father quitting his job. Mm. Um, but in the in the midst of all the discussion about whether this is going to happen and so forth, uh, Philip says something that gets um, Selden's mom transferred and uh, out to Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the in the in the uh, mob uh, violence that occurs in the sort of last third of the of the novel, uh, Selden's mom is killed, um, and uh, uh, there's a very convoluted way of getting Selden back uh, back home. But the guilt that that Philip feels for this, having you know, he he speaks of having killed Selden's mom. Um, drives him at some point to want to run away for a second time. I'm yeah. not remembering the first time. Uh, I'm not remembering exactly the the the, the reasons for uh, for the first time. I'm sure uh, the, our students will <laughs> will help me out there. Um, but um, but he you know he seeks he wants to uh, run away and leave all this stuff behind. In fact, invokes Boys Town, which is you know a um, a famous orphanage in Nebraska, Nebraska, Kansas. Nebraska? I don't remember. Uh, planes. <laughs> <laughs> Flyover um, states, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, I'm just it, kidding. It, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I know. I resemble that remark. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, he, he, he thinks that he's going to go run away and become a self-imposed orphan. Um, and Selden is going to take his place in his family. Uh, at least this is his you know, image of what is, you know, what a possible future might be. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm curious to, to know what you all think about the source of that guilt and what Roth is doing with it. Because as you know, having read some Roth, uh, and as you know, Danny, having done a lot of work in Jewish American fiction, uh, Jewish guilt is a, yeah, it's a thing. Uh, more than a trope, it's a, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it's a it's a big theme, yeah, right? Yeah. Where's he going with this? I don't know. Uh, when you guys, uh, who wants to take it first? Um, I think. Well, I really didn't think about it as much until you brought it up earlier. But I think it could be, and this is going to be a bold claim, but it's. Uh, I think it could be Roth just discussing how he feels guilty potentially for writing not necessarily for writing what he wrote but for the reaction that it caused in the jewish community i think that maybe all of these controversial works that he kind of touched upon in in ghostwriter he talked about how uh, he wrote higher education and his father was very disappointed in him so that was kind of alluding to the jewish community being against what he was saying and their reaction their negative reaction to his depiction of Jews in the community of Newark, New Jersey. But I think in this novel, him being portrayed as a child makes it more impactful because maybe him as a child is him growing up, growing as a writer and him and his kind of immature concept of like the Jewish community and the Jewish experience and how he's just going off and saying all these controversial things. But then their reaction to him is a lot more meaningful if it's in reaction to a child, 
Do you know what I mean? Like, you have a lot more empathy for a child. So when he creates this alternative kind of, um, like, this alternative history and inserts himself as the character, at least, at least naming the character Philip Roth and having him grow up with everyone in his family, in a way, it is him putting himself back in the community as a child and saying, this is how you impacted me. And this is how it will affect people and, like, other Jewish writers who try to speak up and try to have a different opinion than those around them. And especially with, like, the prosthetic idea at the end, when he says that he's a prosthetic, that's really, really powerful. Yeah, we should yeah, because, we should bracket yeah. that and hold on to the prosthetic. Yeah. That's a whole conversation. Um, it that's, is. I'm glad you brought yeah. it up. Actually, that's Thank great. You. Um, and um, I want to get Haley's thoughts too in a second, but I want to kind of just follow up on with one thing there. Uh, in I, there's this always this tension between belonging to the Jewish community and wanting to be free of the Jewish community, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think with Phillips desire to run away and kind of leave the baggage of, in this yeah. case, the of the baggage of persecution um, mm-hmm. behind him and, and become a Catholic orphan or something like that, right? right. Um, and, and, and that's when he loses his stamps, and there's all kinds of really interesting uh, like metaphorical things happening there. It reminded me, going back to um, the book Zuckerman Unbound, which is sort of the second um, mm-hmm. official Nathan Zuckerman book, and in that book, I mean, Unbound means he's gained his freedom through his art, right? He's, he's no longer longer part he's no longer beholden to that right and but what it's a tragedy at the end of that book because his own father like kind of rejects him on his deathbed Mm -hmm. and he goes back to his own whole town and it's completely it's not jewish anymore it's now african-american someone asks him who he is he says no one right so yes i have gained freedom but i um but i've lost identity in that freedom um and so um he's unbound but that's there's a dual meaning to that he's free but he's also kind of unconnected right mm-hmm. and, and so um and i think this is a way in which this book um i think you guys are rightly picking up um picks up on that kind of running theme in roth's fiction for sure mm-hmm. um Haley. okay um so my reading of of the whole guilt situation and, and the uh the selden aspects of this book is is a little different just because of how much emphasis is placed on the analogy between just folks and Hitler youth. Oh uh, yeah. Um yeah. so there's a lot of uh connections between the two but that the guilt that Philip feels after he has uh, condemned the Wishnow family is is something that I feel like Roth is trying to talk about how hard it is to be a child in a fascist society mm. because those children who were brought up in the Hitler youth they, there's no way they could have absolutely known what was going on and so their guilt that they feel for being complacent in a fascist society where they really don't have a choice is is somehow in unjust to those children's childhood and so this is where um Philip even though he wasn't part of the juxtapokes program it was it was his brother he has direct effects of it um, that he feels in his, in his family and within that situation. But I also, um, whenever we were talking about the the uh, the guilt and the running away that uh, Phil or yeah Philip wanted to to do, reminded me of uh, Mary Lavov in American Pastoral and how his wanting to weigh and yearning to be an orphan is somehow this. Uh, bastardized 
version of, uh, I can't think of the word right now, um, like atonement of, mm. of penance for his sins. Mm. So it's, it's uh, Philip taking it on himself to do penance for something that he's really not guilty of because he was just being a petulant child and asking <laughs> Selden be moved instead of him. Like he just didn't want to go with Selden. Yet there's no way he could have known what would happen. Yeah. And so he's, he's doing penance for being a child. And and even, I mean, I'm not even sure he directly asks. He's, he's speaking mm. with his aunt who's really, con- he, her aunt, his aunt in this book, for those of you who haven't read it, is married to a very famous rabbi who's kind of collaborated and given kind of cover for Lindbergh's anti-Semitism. Um, and so they were kind of big in the administration. Um, and so she's, is it kind of, it's implied, I think, that she's in charge of directing these Newark Jews. Like, so she's the mm-hmm. one that's getting them out mm-hmm. into Kentucky. Right. And so when Selden or when, excuse me, Philip says he doesn't want to go, um, cause he doesn't want to leave his friend Selden behind or something like that. So after that, we find out Selden's family is going right. So it's heavily implied mm-hmm. that he was just trying to get out of going himself, but said something in passing that completely unintentionally ends up dooming Selden's mother. Right. Um, mm-hmm. in, uh, in to, KKK violence in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, 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 vi- the, the kind of, I don't know, just the, 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 I don't know how to say what I'm saying. The, the, the completely random and chaotic guilt that he must feel about something that he had no idea about. Like he's such a mm-hmm. small part in a giant machine there. Um, and he has no idea what, what his actions are leading to. And so, um, I think you guys are right. Um, uh, he didn't, he, he did. I mean, he, I think the linchpin is he didn't tell the truth about Selden. Yeah. You know, the implication was, Oh, this is your best friend. Right. And yeah. he said, uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know, so, um, you know, and, and, and at the time, right. Both, both families were going to end up going. Yeah. I mean, this is before dad quits. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, gosh, you know, the, and it is it is exactly a nine year old's impest you know impetuousness. I mean that mm-hmm. you know, uh, so it's it's got to be racking him. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Um, that was a great one. Selden, I think, is a, a very important character in this book, as he is kind of the character we kind of feel most emotionally bad for, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think we're really connected to Selden um, in, in such a, and so he's a very important character to have this tragedy kind of bear down on um, as a way, um, maybe as a prosthetic way of, uh, of dealing with it. We can talk about that in a bit, but um, Haley, you're sort of next in my line of vision here. What is something about the book that you want to uh, um, uh, kind of highlight and focus on? Um, something that, that I, I've, I, uh, talked about earlier, uh, was the sense of, um, accepted persecution mm-hmm. that the Jewish community had, uh, during this book, uh, especially when, uh, the fights between Alvin and the father were prevalent in this sense of accepted persecution because Alvin was ready to go. He, he somehow knew that something bad was going to happen if they stayed. Um, and while he does come back, that that beginning fight between him and his uncle are, they just showcase that sense of uh, acceptedness that mm-hmm. they have for their own persecution in life. Um, but his father, especially uh, the 
Roth, Roth's father in this book especially intrigued me because he was so sure that nothing could ever happen to them as long as they were true to their Jewishness, mm. even though that was the one thing they were persecuting in the government. Yeah. Yeah. Even in the trip to DC, um, which is probably something we should talk <laughs> about. Um, you see his kind of, he's utterly aghast that like they're just openly kicking him out of that hotel once they find out he's Jewish. Right. And the police are helping them do it. Right. Uh, it, <clears throat> because I mean, he just kind of felt like there's this ideal of American values that he just can't, he just believes is just un, unassailable. Right. And, and he, he can't imagine that his, his Jewishness should actually have that kind of effect on his actual life at that moment. Yeah. Um, and just to kind of give a little context for what you're talking about, Alvin is the cousin basically of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of Philip and Sandy, the brothers, uh, in this story. And he is very, um, anti Lindbergh, right? And he's very, um, he wants to go to Germany and basically kill Nazis. He wants to be in that. Quentin Tarantino movie, basically, um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. the Inglorious Bastards. And and so he uh, goes to Canada, who Canada gets involved in the war since the United States has become isolationist. And uh, and so as a Canadian soldier, he goes over and fights and ends up losing um, his leg. Um, and in very interesting, uh, the, the, the story that he tells about losing his leg is actually a very interesting one. Um, and, and then he comes back, this wounded figure um, that the family has to kind of care for um the the leg story i think is interesting he basically has shot a german and listened to the german die overnight basically in the middle of the field and then he goes out and starts just like shooting the dead body in rage and then gets blown up by or shot or something and loses Mm -hmm. his, his limb uh in that way and so it to me that kind of spoke to alvin not having a patriotic motivation to in defending america or but he's defending jewishness right and he's lashing out out of jewish anger um and he's sort of punished for that and so um yeah i think um alvin's own kind of struggle with um this i mean i guess he's a, a figure of muscular judaism um and, and so he's a uh, um is is a very interesting element to the story and then he weirdly disappears for for most of the book and then pops up at the end and so he's yeah. a very a very interesting yeah. character but he also introduces the idea of prosthetics um because of his leg and i definitely want to um, mm. touch on that uh, in a bit but first uh, uh Haley, do you have uh, further thoughts before i, I leave um, you? what are you wearing well, a yankees you're wearing a yankees thing what's wrong with you i, uh, I, I like the yankees <laughs> sorry I'm just kidding. It's really cold. Money ball. <laughs> Money ball. I love the Yankees. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> no, just a, another example of this. Whenever uh, you were talking, Danny, it was uh, Rabbi. Uh, hi, Cooper. Was Rabbi Bengelsdorf? I think is his name, and the rabbi in that, and he is a um, an advocate for Lindbergh, and mm-hmm. he in the words of Alvin, basically sells the Jewish community out and opens them up to prosecution and, and sells Lindbergh to the Jews because now he has a Jewish spokesman and now they're going to trust him and he's going to get office. And Rabbi Bengelsdorf is basically uh, forcing persecution onto his own people. I I think it's interesting. I want to get your thoughts on this guys. Um, at some point, somebody, I think it's the dad, says that he's not um, 
selling, he's not selling Lindbergh to the Jews. He's making him safe for the Gentiles, um, yes. who really mm-hmm. are kind of really sympathetic with Lindbergh, but don't want to be overtly racist, right? And so if there's like a Jewish figure head up there, um, that's like an excuse um, to write off the, the, the kind of innate racism of uh, or anti-Semitism of, of Lindbergh's project, right? And so um, that I think has a lot of political application today. Um, very often openly racist candidates will have you know, the token black person on their cabinet, right? Um, or something like that to kind of, and it's not to sell the black people of on their, their, it's to make the white people feel like I can pretend this isn't racist, right? And, and I think that um, that is a really, the rabbi is a really interesting figure. And he, of course, um, once Lindbergh becomes like the target of, uh, of uh, violence, um, there's this sort of rounding up of uh, of, of <laughs> dissenters, including FDR gets arrested, right? Um, and and the rabbi is one of the people who kind of get um, brought in uh, at the end, and so his cozying up doesn't even pay any, <laughs> it doesn't pay off in the end. But um, yeah, great, great stuff, Melissa. Uh, related to that, Whatever. or just yeah. oh, okay? Because I was going to talk about the stamps, but <laughs> yeah. then go ahead, yeah, or go, you wanna, um, if you want to pick up something and then go to the stamps, that's okay, fine. yeah. Uh, it kind of made me think of a conversation we had yesterday with um, one professor that kind of walked by the office. I came in to talk to you. Ah. Now you guys were in the middle of a yeah. conversation. Nathan, Nathan McGee. He's been on the show before. We can name him. Mm-hmm. So it's oh, a, okay. Yeah. Well, when what Nathan said about the one political candidate, I won't name political candidates <laughs> by name, but the one political candidate being lower in lower in favor with the African-American community Um I think that really, what you said really made me think of that, because that, um, what was his name, Rabbi Bengelsdorf, was really, again, that, that what made it safe for the Gentiles to vote for Lindbergh. It's kind of what the one political candidate, I just saw this yesterday on Instagram, I was scrolling by, all of a sudden, this week, when he needs these votes from the black community, I see all of this information that this one political candidate put out about oh, this is my plan for this. This is my plan to help the black community here. This is how I've helped the black community in the past. And I was like, you never talked about this before until your numbers came in from the black community. So that's why that really made me think of that, especially because of that recent conversation that we had. Yeah. And so I don't know, that just really made me think of that because it's so relevant right now. Yeah, we'll get to the relevance of this book, but that is definitely a way in which um, it, it sheds a lot of wisdom, I think, on on what's beneath politics almost. Kind mm-hmm. of. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, but um, do you want to move stamps. on? Stamps. Yeah, yeah, stamps. Good. I think that is probably the part of the book that stood out to me the most was the stamp collections. And I think it's so significant because I really think it shows the manipulation and like perversion of this immature hobby that little nine-year-old Philip Roth has. And especially because it combines having this childlike hobby with something so American, Mm. such as the post office and all of the national symbols that they have on all the postage stamps. And then when he has the dream that they're all covered in swastikas, I think that's really impactful because it kind of shows how this political anti-Semitism, this just unrest in the political climate of the time has influenced everyone, including this, his, this poor child's stamp collection. This very innocent, pure thing that he does just to keep himself busy. 
and and the fact that he loses it like the progression of the stamp collection how he has them and then how he has the dream that they get the swastikas on them as soon as Lindbergh's going to be elected then he's elected then they go to dc then he thinks he's going to lose them and then he comes back and when he runs away for the first time i think when he runs away he loses them completely and yeah. i feel like that really shows the separation of american ideals and what has become a fascist government in the book mm -hmm. and that's why i think that the stamps are so interesting because they combine the american ideals with this immature pastime and demonstrate how nothing is really sacred once fascism and anti-semitism and discrimination are involved nothing's sacred everything's influenced even a child this child who's mm -hmm. just trying to have a hobby like everyone has a hobby and this this child is not exempt from anything that's going on outside of it outside of the family yeah and the hobby is one to i mean basically he's being a good american that's like the all-american hobby yeah. from, oh, from yeah. days gone by right especially at that time yeah um what's the term for a stamp collector it's got some ph philatelist uh, yeah yes thank you um <laughs> yeah it sounds like it should be something else that roth would write about in another book but um but, uh, but not this <laughs> but uh <laughs> but the uh um the uh the idea of his idealization of america as this kind of abstract ideal Right. Mm -hmm. And that abstract ideal is what gets stained with the swastika. Right. Um, and I'm also reminded, Melissa, when the at some point the mother and father are having a, an argument about what they can mail and what's safe to mail. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and the father says, oh, they would never mess with the mail. Like there's something sacred <laughs> about the yeah. mail. The fascists <laughs> can't get into the mail. Right. And, yeah. um, and, and yeah. so the, definitely the idea of a post office being this kind of symbol, really of what binds a people together as a, a as a people group right a, mm -hmm. as a geopolitical state as a as a whatever as some abstract identity of american right mm -hmm. um and the stamp is how philip kind of engages with that idea and his stamps that he sees are like the national park stamps so this isn't like george washington with a, a swastika on his face it's like the landscape of america right? with uh with the yeah. uh, of publicly owned america right of, yeah. of, the, of the national parks um with the, the swastika mm -hmm stamped on it and so yeah it is a really like fascinating extended metaphor it's like a motif that goes on in this book um from beginning and it's on the cover i mean it's the cover of the book is that stamp with the yep. swastika on it and uh and yeah that's a really great um observation as well yes yeah, so, todd aren't are i lucky uh, weren't these great <laughs> this is an amazing group um, absolutely oh yeah go, go no, ahead I wanted, I wanted to take your class when, when you told me you were teaching this class <laughs> listen to these to two it, go but... though it's great um, but yeah <laughs> but wasn't his wasn't his most valuable stamp the Lindbergh stamp? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the one he was hiding from his family. So whenever right. Sandy was hiding drawings of Lindbergh, he was right. also hiding the stamp. And, yeah, and think about but stamp Lindbergh before he enters politics is like an abstract ideal of Americanness, right? I mean, his uh, yeah. the flight of the spirit of St. Louis is like this heroic thing that little boys look up to to this day, right? And so yeah. um, it's not until he's drawn into the, the nitty gritty of politics that he becomes like gross, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, that's fascinating. Um, I, one thing, gosh, there's so many things to talk about in this uh, brief amount of time we have together. But for me, one thing that I kind of want to, I guess, make sure I talk about is um, uh, a 
I don't know how to work this in neatly, so I'm going to have an ugly segue between two completely separate ideas. You have to bear with me. Um, one Never is, happens in class. <laughs> the idea that in this case, like it, like that in that video I showed my class, fascism emerges without really changing anything. Like it, it, from the ground, unless you're Jewish, right? It doesn't look that different. The, I mean, the symbols of America remain, uh, and it just it's got it, it's so subtle the the change from one thing to another. The anti-Semitic violence, the pogroms that um, pop up all over America in the second half of this, that anti-Semitism was always there, right? It just took a certain um, okay from from the higher-ups to make it okay to express, right, uh, and, and to act upon. And so it, it's what the thing that's chilling about this book for me is the way that it madness can be actually kind of seen normal right and we take mm -hmm. madness as normal uh and 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 even while this is going on we see it from the perspective of the of the kitchen table basically they're just sitting around worrying about fascists most of the book and uh mm -hmm. and 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 so it it's it's a fascinating um aspect of this and here's my clumsy segue into the thing i want to talk <laughs> about um is the dual endings, like there's the the book ends twice, kind of, right? You've got this uh -huh. almost like documentary um, newsreel reportage about the mm. events of the end of the book, uh, at the end of Lindbergh's term. Um, after these, after this violence, Lindbergh has been flying around the country by himself as president, which is kind of unbelievable. Um, but uh, I always kind of took the Lindbergh in a plane thing as a, a, a jab at Bush for flying in on that aircraft carrier saying that mission accomplished. Uh, do you remember that? Uh, <laughs> I, I, remember that. I, I kind of took this as a, as a but I think oh. it also means other things too. But, um, but the uh, uh, Lindbergh just disappears one day. Right. Uh, and no one ever knows what happens to him. And then there becomes this conspiracy theory that um, he may or may not have the, the baby may have survived and been raised in Nazi Germany and they were holding him hostage to make sure Lindbergh did their bidding here. Um, we don't know if any of that is actually true in this alternative universe or not. But um, and after a while, Lindbergh uh, just disappears. Mm -hmm. Order is just kind of magically restored after Walt Winchell is assassinated and uh, FDR becomes president again. And we just kind of snap out of this terrible nightmare. Um, and so all those kind of the events that lead up to that in the end of this book, um, by the way, that was a spoiler alert. <laughs> I should have seen, I, I should give those before I spoil the end of the book, but in this case, um, I've alerted you that I have spoiled the end of the book for you previously, as you just heard. And so the, um, uh, the, but then that documentary chapter is followed by while that all is going on, um, the kind of journey of Philip and his father, driving through the night to Kentucky to try and save Alvin, right? Um, they rescue Alvin. They bring him back um, through kind of uncertain, perilous conditions, right? And they get him back to um, Newark um, where he's going to live with them for about a year, maybe 10 months. I forget what it was. And he ultimately goes off to live with an aunt or something. Um, and so I just find that that juxtaposition of the kind of God view of geopolitical mechanisms um followed up with what it looks like to real people on the ground to be very Philip Roth, right? Uh, particularly mm -hmm. in the, in the Zuckerman books that we read about the, the American trilogy, it, it looks at these kind of vast kind of complicated political moments 
And we experience that moment through the eyes of a person, right? And, and what did that, what the, living in that time do to that person, kind of? And, uh, and, and I think that, um, what Roth is doing here is a different version of that same thing. It's like, here's the political moment. Here's what it looks like for real people, right? And, and I think, um, you get both history and empathy and you get both history and art right there, um, together. And, and I just think it's a fascinating, like formal uh, technique to this book. A lot of people complain about the ending. Um, they feel like it's it's cheap or it's a, an easy way out or something like that. Um, I think that's part of Roth's point, though, is the ending is mm-hmm. to make this a bad dream that we were lucky enough to wake out of, wake up out of. Um, so, um, uh, Todd, <laughs> I, I don't, I, <laughs> he's making I don't, poopy face at me here. I don't know. I, I am, I am, but. I, because I don't, I don't know if he's ended it in an easy way. Okay. Um, if the book ended with the penultimate chapter, yeah, it was an easy way. Yeah. But it ends with this, the, you know, redescription of the nine days of Burton Wheeler's, uh, you know, acting presidency or whatever. Yeah. And I don't think things are over. Mm. You know, they may be officially over. Yeah. But they're, you know, what what the the real um, for me, as I as I read this, the I am left with the uh, the the feeling that the the really damaging anti-Semitism is the one that doesn't end up in in the overt violence. It's that underlying anti-Semitism that's just there. The perpetual fear, right? The, the end exactly. of the book is called perpetual exactly. fear. Yeah. So I think it's brilliant what he's done here. Actually, I don't I don't find it to be a a cop out in any way. Yeah, I agree. Obviously I, 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 yeah, but there are critics who at the time kind of reviewed it as, as a weak ending. Um, and there were many critics who were really angry at this book. I think somebody from the federalist called it like character assassination or something like that. They, uh, they thought that it was very unfair to Lindbergh. I would actually love to get, um, Chris Gertz's idea. Uh, I know that he's written about Lindbergh a lot and, uh, Mm. and, and I think he's even mentioned this book. I would love to get his reaction to this. If Chris, if you're listening out there, uh, send us an email and I'll read it on the air. If you want to take me down, that's fine. Um, but the, um, (laughs) um, but, um, I, I agree. I think that this is, um, a really kind of, not clever. I think it's actually a very poignant way to end the book. Um, and what yeah. could have been cute. I think it, it, he actually kind of rehumanizes it in the end there. So, um, ladies, do you have any uh, follow up to any of that? Go ahead. I completely agree. I also don't think it's mm-hmm. over because I don't think events like that, they don't end. Their mm-hmm. impacts don't just end right there. It, it made me, when I was reading about the riots and the pogroms, I was reading, I felt like I was watching the Charlottesville riots and then the the nationalist parades which were just glorified nazi raids and they they murdered so many people with what they were doing and it's not like we can just wrap that wrap wrap that up and say oh and they were arrested and everyone treated everyone kindly after that Mm -hmm. because that's not how it works in real life so Philip Roth ending the novel like this is the most realistic way for him to end the novel. If he ended it any other way, that would just be dishonest Mm -hmm. because events that the events that transpired in that novel were so horrific, just as the Charlottesville events were horrific. And as there are events going on currently that are horrific, the school shootings and everything else, every horrible event that occurs it's going to have larger impacts that can't just be wrapped up in three sentences you know it's it's not so if philip roth had ended it any other way i think that would have been a cop-out 
And I probably would have been angry at the way he ended it. Yeah, um, it kind of, our discussion here reminds me a little bit. I've been thinking a lot. I'm teaching a class on the horror film next semester. And, um, so I've, I've, I'm always thinking about horror films, but particularly now I'm trying to decide what movies to choose. And, um, uh, the Avi Aster movies, uh, Midsummer. I'm not going to do some Midsummer. That's a, a bridge too far, but, uh, I, I am, I am going to do Hereditary in, in the class. Um, and both of those films, though, right in the middle of the movie is the most traumatic moment of the movie, right? Um, I'm not going to say what they are, but, and it just leaves you in this kind of dreamlike state of shock for the rest of the movie. And I think this is kind of what Roth is doing by perpetual fear. It's like this, amazing shock is just not amazing in a good way, but this kind of um, catastrophic shock has just happened to the entire country and particularly the Jewish community. And, and then life goes on after that. And you're sort of left in the haze of that shock. Right. Uh, and, and I think that there's a way in which um, uh, like what those movies are doing in, in terms of horror uh, kind of shed some light on what Roth is means by perpetual fear. Right. So what happens after the points in those movies is kind of peanuts compared to what happened <laughs> in the middle. Right. <laughs> and so, um, but, uh, but it still has that lingering effect that like produces the horror of the second half. Right. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. And so the, the horror, the 20th century is a horrible place, right. Uh, um, without, without exception. And Roth has given mm-hmm. us a moment in which it could have been more horrible than it was even here. So um, um, more thoughts on that. Melissa, should I move it over to Haley? Yeah, Haley. <laughs> um, so the two parts of the ending for me, really, again, like you said, they showcase kind of the governmental, version of what happens and yeah. then the, the humanistic version of what happens with regular people um and for the first part with with the government trying to explain everything is that they're trying to explain this in a way that um excuses the evil that's inexplicable mm. that that Lindbergh commits against actual human beings um and this is kind of where even today we try to find reasons for why bad things happen and we try to find like the the hidden past the the redeeming past story kind of the the anakin skywalker story if you will <laughs> of why people are evil because they, they, <laughs> yeah, they hate sand yeah they hate sand but for this like there's there's really no excuse for why anti-Semitism exists. It's all based on prejudice. It's just based on hatred. And so this is kind of people trying to explain something away where in a more realistic version of this with um, going back to get Selden, you can't. And and that's where it it really continually affects, like you said, in that perpetual fear. Um, And then my second... Uh, kind of observation of this is we had talked about how history kind of just picks up where it left off mm-hmm. but for this i feel like this is where roth is saying the history did change because now this anti-semitism is locked into people's brains people yep. participated in the programs they participated in the riots so this is no longer going to go away whereas in some more realistic cases uh especially when i was write- writing my final paper i found an article um that kind of talked about the difference between the African-American and the Jewish communities and their views uh, according to, like, the white perspective. Um, And so Jewish people were kind of seen as, like, 
secondary white people in a way. And so like they were accepted in the society and they were seen as um, like more like higher up than the African-Americans. Uh, but this is where like this, their status in the world has changed. And that is where like the history changes in uh, the plot against America. Yeah. They get um, the assimilation of um, the 20th century. I can't imagine how that happens after this moment. Right. Um, uh, and so, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, Cause they've been, um, experience this like such a traumatic event and and yeah and actually it's interesting if if roth's timeline were true going stepping into the book now i mean like you have to bear with me here this is a a thought experiment um but if we go into the if we live in the world of the plot against america and step into its post plot against america future could a writer like philip roth have actually written the stuff that he wrote in the 1950s and 1960s in the wake 20 years after this happening in America, right? It's one thing for Roth to make those claims um, about Jewish community that he made when the memory was of the Holocaust in Europe. You know what I'm saying? It would have been another thing to have done that kind of work when this event happened here to these people mm. who are reading the book, right? And so it's a very um, uh, a troubling kind of uh, thought experiment for Roth's own work after that. And and yeah, and I, the, we began with the idea of guilt, right? And, and I wonder, mm-hmm. um, I think it seems that we're coming back to that a little bit, the, the guilt of um, the responsibility of the artist, mm. right? Mm. And so, yeah. I wonder... Um... I, maybe maybe this is just going to complicate matters, but w- what else do we do? Because um, <laughs> I don't think the Jewish community is let off the hook here either, um, as as being un, an unbiased, innocent people. Um, uh, Philip's mom at the end just suddenly starts talking about these goyish idiots, yeah, and and what have you, um, and that kind of that kind of language i mean that's a slur or it can be used as one and i think it's it's intended that way um for I, her in well in for, for her okay in general i thought her. you meant i thought you meant in general yeah for in her. that moment yeah i think she's definitely it, exactly. lashing out and so you know what is the i i just i don't i don't i don't know i don't know enough of his work to know whether what he is doing here is saying, you know, we're not exactly pure as the driven snow here. We also hold our own biases. Well, and yeah. yeah. And that you get that a lot. And mm-hmm. I mean, these, these guys will um, back me up on this. Um, you get a lot of like anti African-American sentiment from some of these Jewish yeah. characters in this, yeah. in these books, um, in, in Ross books, particularly with what happens with Newark after it's this kind of Jewish paradise of Ross youth in the 1960s, the, the, the social and economic um, blight of that city and the riots that ensued and its transition into an African-American community, you do see a lot of overt racism um, from characters in Roth's books, right? Um, and so, um, yeah, there's absolutely a way in which Roth is very invested in, in I don't want to say dragging Jews through the mud, but... Um, making them fully human capable. Well, they're real. Yeah. Real. They're, they're real they're, people. They're right? capable. I mean, they're not like, um, magical Jews, right? Uh, they're not, they're not sort of, um, uh, they're not like, friendly golems. yeah, yes. They're not like, uh, uh, 
preternaturally good people, yeah. right? Um, yeah. They are real people, like who come from yeah. a particular con- uh, 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 context. And so, yeah, I think that that's consistent, I think, with what we've we've seen in, in Roth's work and you guys want to follow up on that feel free um, you don't need my permission to talk of course so um, <laughs> yeah and both of their papers by the way were, were really really interesting um, can I tell a little bit about the concepts would you guys sure oh, yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah. yeah go ahead yeah Haley wrote about this um, sequence in Fantasia the the pastoral what was it called what pastoral pastoral symphony pastoral symphony um, and used America the politics basically of American pastoral to kind of understand mm-hmm. the relationships of the their very characters in that um, cartoon and it was really really great it was really great and and likewise Melissa used um, nemesis which is about a polio um, outbreak in uh, in the 1950s uh, and it's kind of like a, a book about atheism if you will and it's a, it's a theodicy book basically mm-hmm. um, and she used that as a way to kind of um, critique the movie God's not deads perversion of Nietzsche's idea of God's dead, right? It's yeah, a, it was yeah. a really, really two really fascinating um, projects uh, that, that came out of these two. I was very, um, I kind of felt when I was finishing tallying up final grades, I'm like, man, I gave a lot of A's in this class. Maybe I made it too easy, but they did a lot of work and they did a lot of really good work. I think they all deserved the grades they got. And so I was yeah. very, very pleased to give that many A's in that awesome. class actually. So yeah, um, yeah, these are two um, of my kind of stellar students. And so um I do think we need to carve out a little bit of time. We're already a minute, an hour 12 into this, but um, <laughs> you can't talk about this book and not talk about why it has become kind of a go-to text uh, since 2016, right? Um, and so uh, you guys, uh, do you guys want to start with that? Um, I mean, I, I come from a very uh, conservative family. Um, and so our, our per, like, not mine personally, because I'm a very independent, non-party affiliated. Um, but the, the perceptions that people closest to me have of our per- current political climate really match up with the kind of uh, effects that Lindbergh has in the book. Because the, a lot of the people were complacent in, in his uh, anti-Semitism. And so it just kind of seems interesting that people today are even still kind of uh just wholeheartedly american and it and on the most basis of like most finite of senses that they're just blind to some of the things that are happening and and refuse to see uh the problems because of party affiliation and that sense of like loyalty to their party yeah i i wonder this just came to me like, I wonder if it's that the idea of Americanness for the Lindbergh voter, um, and perhaps for another voter <laughs> that, um, is that the idea of Americanness is like tied up in sim- symbols, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. it's, and it, and it, and it's kind of these abstract ideas of, of like sort of freedom and, and, in an unspoken way, the kind of racial qualities and religious qualities that make up a quote, true American. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and and I think that that's one thing that, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm not afraid to talk about Trump on this show. Right. But I mean, you can say, you know, I'm saying that guy, yeah, yeah. but that is, is, yeah, that is one thing. I mean, that is about this time, right. Um, uh, that there's something, um, people are, he's a symbol of some, abstract kind of 
um, I would say, kind of reactionary idea of what a true America is like. And so his slogan, Make America Great Again, um, it seems like it could have come right out of Lindbergh's mouth, right? Um, Haley is going to say something. Yeah. Um, that just reminded me that that, that sense of Americanness and, and the slogans and, and the symbolism is that I feel like a, the reason why a lot of people voted for him is because we've kind of lost our sense as a national identity. And so uh, that's going back. And so even people today are still looking for that idyllic American pastoral. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and so that's and that's just to me is like, especially I'll admit, like even in the beginnings of his of, of Trump's campaign, I was kind of like, okay, maybe this could be a good thing. Like he has a business background. Like I didn't know a lot about him. Obviously, uh, I was like a junior in high school. I was very young and malleable, but, um, <laughs> I thought maybe it could be a good thing and maybe it could be something to kind of bring back this sense of lostness that we have. And, and now, and just still some of the, some of his policies, I, I completely don't agree with, but just that, that, continual yearning that people have for uh, Americanness and a, con- a conjoined American identity amongst all people is still prevalent even after this book has been written. And just like Sweet Levov, you talk about pastoral, like his quest from Newark to go back to the very heart of the foundations of America there in, in, in old Rimrock, New Jersey, right? Where George Washington slept and all that. Um, like <laughs> he's trying to go back to something that predates all the filth, right? Uh, and, and I think you get that in the politics of, of both Lindbergh and, 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 and Trump. And I think in both cases, one thing that they share in common is that Lindbergh is a symbol himself of an ideal of America, oh, yeah. right? Uh, for those people who like him. And just as Trump is an abstraction of a person, right? He's an abstraction of this kind of, um, competent business, um, tough minded, going to protect Americans first. I mean, none of that is true, of course, but, <laughs> but that's the, the persona that, that he, kind of his uh put on in, in his political career right uh and so they're they're like voting these bodies that they're voting for <laughs> that are named charles Lindbergh and donald trump are actually like just placeholders for abstract ideas that we kind mm-hmm. of like long for um and in but yeah but they open up this kind of yeah excuse to kind of let the latent nastiness out and, and be very public mm-hmm. with it. As you mentioned, um, Charlottesville, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, Melissa, what, what are your thoughts on this? Ooh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to find a way to organize my thoughts so I don't sound like I'm ranting. Um, but it's, oh, it's so hard. There's one particular passage that I remembered, and, and I think it's really interesting because Roth has talked about it before. He's talked about censorship of authors and of artists and it's i'm not going to read it but it's from page 260 in my book and it's when walter winchell is giving one of his final speeches and it's probably his most emotionally charged speech and one of the things he says is they can take away my newspaper column and they have done that as you know and and i just as soon as i read it i was like oh my god fake news (laughs) fake news and it's it's just truly horrifying. And I think that is why so many people can connect it to today is because they're seeing these things that are so wholly un-American and so wholly against what they were voting for and what they had envisioned that they're terrified. But a lot of people don't want to admit they're wrong. They don't want to admit that they made a mistake and they voted for 
something, a, a person that they place these false ideals on. I don't think that truly, if you examined everything that he stood for at the beginning of his campaign, you would realize, wow, he really doesn't stand for any of the ideals that even these people who claim to be so American, he truly doesn't stand for any of them. And from his beginning speeches, like, I, I, I mean, maybe it's from my own, I do have a very particular view of politics and I am not necessarily independent. I'm not necessarily conservative. I'm pretty, I'm pretty liberal. I'm going to say that I'm pretty liberal, but my, my show has a, the widest <laughs> variety of political listeners. Like, yeah, well, you and will not offend. Regardless yeah. of what, like, because I don't, I don't affiliate with a party, but I would consider myself more liberal if I had to. But regardless of what party or what you stand for, there, it, people don't want to admit they're wrong. Mm-hmm. I never want to admit I'm wrong, but you do because that's how you grow. But that's the problem with a lot. I think that's, again, another reason why a lot of people relate this book to today is none of these people were willing to admit they're wrong. And that's why Roth is particularly influential in this area is because he's able to recognize when he's wrong. He's practically making fun of himself in most of the books that he writes. Oh, yeah. And he points out the flaws in every single community. And that's why people can relate it to today. Because regardless of where you stand politically, there's all of these groups that we belong to that we're not recognizing that we have flaws with. And like even the other day, again, talking about our political conversation we had yesterday, the one candidate, the statement that he made trying to relate to a community that he is not a part of with his own personal experiences, that's a flaw that he has. That's a flaw that his ideology has. And then that would be something that I feel like Philip Roth would write about. It was, it was, I can say it's Buttigieg, right? Um, And I love him. I love him. And it was his like, like, well, I'm gay. So I understand what it's like to be black. Right. And so, (laughs) and so it's like a totally, um, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That's yeah. Kind of embarrassing, honestly. Mm But, um, but Mm -hmm. I think that you're totally right. And I don't, I've been thinking about this a lot. So Trump's support among the evangelical community, um, Mm -hmm. for one thing is, makes no logical sense whatsoever. You cannot logically defend that support um, based on it seems it's an overt violation of stated principles, right? Um, to support him. Um, and I, you can disagree with me if you want, but that's, I will stand by that statement. I think lots of people will, will agree with me on that. Um, you darn listener, you. Uh, and so, um, but so that's just like one example, but you're right in general, this has been haunting me lately. I posted something about this on, on the show's private Facebook discussion group yesterday. I, I feel like our political discourse is more akin to sports fandom than anything else, right? Mm-hmm. And so you, you choose through some emotional attachment, a, 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 an abstract identity that I am a conservative, I am a liberal, I am whatever, a libertarian, they're probably the worst, but anyway, uh, but the, uh, um, the, I'm sorry, Todd's probably a libertarian and I'm just trashing him. <laughs> so, but uh, I love Todd, he knows it. Um, and so the, um, uh, and so you choose that identity and then you match your logical conclusions and your perceptions of the world to match that identity. And so I would say if, if Trump would tomorrow 
call for universal health care and getting rid of private insurance, suddenly Republicans would be for universal health care and getting rid of private insurance, right? And so because this is the team I've chosen and I'm going to match my beliefs to fit that team. Um, and I, I think that's one of the most kind of terrifying aspects of our current political moment um, because I don't see a way out of that because it's uh, there's some metaphysical thing that's above and controlling all of our politic our politics um and so and i think this book um kind of gets it how that kind of demagoguery like works right uh and and how that kind of how people are swept up unbeknownst to them into doing terrible things right they're unaware of what they're doing um because it's just in front of them and natural and and yeah mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with you guys both mm-hmm. Melissa and, and yeah. Haley there so um other thoughts on that or you want to pass it on to todd there so all right todd the libertarian. Um, I'm just. I don't even know if Todd is a libertarian. No, no. So I, you know, I've become. I, I, you know, the, the older I've gotten, the more independent I've become because I've seen the ugliness that exists in politics. I'm, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm sorry, but both sides of the aisle uh, can can do just as well as demagogues. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I know. Uh, I I meant to cover everybody. I know with we've this. talked yeah. about this before. It's it's you know. Um, but, the, you know, the current moment, I mean, the thing that jumped out to me, the, the, you know, is, is not necessarily uh, some of the overt ugliness that's going on here, but it is Bengelsdorf is Franklin Graham, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and Robert Jeffers, you yeah. know, and mm. the um, as John Fea calls them, the uh, uh, the court. What is it? The court apologists? The court evangelicals. evangelicals. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like. Good grief, guys. I mean, are you serious? This is the most unfit man we've ever seen in, in, uh, uh, for this office. Um, and you're fawning over him like he's the Messiah. Um, and, uh, you know, it is, I, I, there's, there's, there's serious resonance here between, between Bengelsdorf and these, these, these leaders yeah. of, of this community who, um, uh, you know, in, 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 in many ways, I think have sown the seeds of destruction of, 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 you know, the, the Republican party as we know it. Um, cause what, you know, what, what, what principle, what room is there for principled stands anymore? Yeah. I mean, well, seriously. Yeah. I mean, honestly, <laughs> if I'm to kind of like be, partisan here and maybe unfairly. So, um, I admit that I'm probably being unfair here, but I've long felt that really the main idea that Republicans really kind of put their, their weight in their, 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 their trust in is tax cuts. I mean, small government and tax cuts. I think that's the only thing they really believe in. They run on abortion. They run on gay rights. That stuff is shiftable. Um, and obviously, the abortion thing hasn't changed despite their controlling the Supreme court and all this for so long. Right. And so um, the only thing they really cared about was tax cuts and Trump gave them that. So yeah, build a wall. I don't care. They don't even care about small government. Right. At this point, mm-hmm. um, they just care about the tax cuts and, and they got that. And so whatever else doesn't matter. So I mean, that's me being perhaps unfair and I'm willing to own that, but, um, but yeah, so now it, it's, uh, uh, do you guys have any final thoughts before we kind of uh, close this one up? Um, anybody this was a lot Um, of go ahead yeah Haley yeah no uh, Melissa had talked about uh, the whole fake news and and bringing uh, Walter Winchell into this Um, and and just a a quick thought is that while back then they had casters like Walter Winchell to kind of give uh, commentary that was 
opposing opposing commentary to to the modern politics and and Winchell was very like outspoken and was very out there about it but today our media isn't the same as yeah. that so i mean you have your two you have like CNN and you have Fox that kind of like fight but you don't really have someone who is coming in from the outside who is like someone who's like not really called to do this and, and talking about kind of the fallacies and the benefits of our government and and now especially in in the wake of the trump impeachment walter winchell is is kind of a parallel to the whistleblower whoever they may be and and just the kind of silencing of winchell in his assassination and the calling out for i can't remember which state if it was tennessee or kentucky the the senator that looked at the media and said media do your job name the whistleblower yeah. uh, thanks to to dr jess um <laughs> but that that just to me kind of is saying that in that kind of government that is not beneficial to people the media and the people who provide the most commentary on the the detriments of that government are silenced yeah mm-hmm. yeah now i think in reality todd you might know more about this than me winchell himself was I mean, you you could call him fake news. I think, and fair enough. I mean, he I think was was he payola. I mean, was he did he did um I, I he was not like a squeaky wheel, okay, or a squeaky. I guess he might have been a squeaky wheel, but he was not squeaky <laughs> clean. Um and oh no, but oh no, but mm-hmm. he so he was this sort of like broadcast demagogue on some level, right? Um, mm-hmm. he was like a liberal Rush Limbaugh, you might say. I don't know. Um, Definitely a sensationalist. Yeah. I mean, that sort of, yeah, it had that flavor. Yeah. And, and so, um, but in the book, you're talking about Haley, and you're totally right. Here. Yeah, um, in, in the book. In the book, yeah. the, the Winchell of the book um, is very much a, um, a counter, like an independent counter to the other institutions of society. And this is another thing I said on my Facebook post, was that I feel like we don't have independent institutions. Like if you are... I mean, that party affiliation or whatever identity, if you're a journalist, that over, that overrides your job as a journalist and your duties as a journalist. If you're a congressperson who's supposed to provide checks and balances on the other branches of government, it overrides that. If you're on the, and I just feel like that's one thing that's making me bleak about our current moment is that exactly what you're describing. We don't have someone transcendent of those institutions to kind of, um, offer, kind of critical guidance upon those institutions. We're all sort of part of the same milieu. And, and I guess what we're talking about is postmodernism on some level here. Um, but um, <laughs> but I, I do think that it's a, it is a very depressing thing. I wish we had a Winchell as he's constructed in the book here, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, guys, I cannot thank you enough. This was so much fun. Um, <laughs> I have to say, um, I, I, I knew this was going to be fun. And, and, I gotta say, I'm just selfishly, I'm just so happy to show off, um, awesome students that I get to work with. I, I, I really love my job. And, uh, and this was a really great semester. This class, I had no idea how teaching a, a, an old Jewish guy from the East Coast who's like three generations older than these students here who are from Penn Central Pennsylvania, how they would react to Philip Ross fiction. They really, um, you know, not, they didn't love everything he wrote, but they really got into it. And I think they really, um, uh, brought a lot of like personal, um, passion to these conversations. And I just loved, um, teaching the class. I hate to let it go. And so I, I thought I would kind of carry it on into the show here a little bit. And, um, and Haley and Melissa, thank you so much, you two. 
for uh, for uh, for joining in. This was so much fun. Um, and Todd, thank you as well. You're always a guest on the show, when, or you're always welcome to be a guest on the show anytime. Um, and I will extend that invitation over to these ladies as well. Um, in the meantime, if you guys have any, uh, the listeners out there have any kind of comments or uh, questions about the show, be f- sure to let me know. You can reach us. We have a Facebook page. There's a Twitter account. We have a Gmail even, sectarianreview at gmail.com. And uh, you know how the places you can get in touch with me. I love to hear from listeners. And uh, signing off for Todd Pedler, Haley Ritchie, and Melissa Stow. my name is Danny Anderson, thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. <laughs>